Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington, Ohio Church of Christ. We pray that this message will inspire you and help you grow closer to God in your faith. Be sure to stick around after the message to find out more about how you can take your next best step. Enjoy the message. In this sermon series where we ask for questions, uh, one of the questions that came up was how should Christians feel, do, act about abortion laws? And we brought in an expert to help us with this. I'd like to introduce you to Mike Spencer. Mike uh, is a former pastor of 23 years and now the founder of Project Life Voice. Um, he is uh, married to Barb and they have five children and eight grandchildren. Uh, Mike asked me uh, before the service starts, he said, how much trouble am I going to get in if I go five minutes er- over? And I said, no problem, I'll just take five minutes off next week. Thank you for laughing. Please uh, welcome Mike Spencer to the stage. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Dale. <clears throat> Thank you. It is very nice to be with you and um, to worship with you this morning. This is a real uh, blessing to me. I do want to thank uh, Pastor Dale and Pastor Jacob and the rest of your team here, your leadership, for the opportunity to address you on, on such an important subject, the sacredness or the sanctity of human life and the threat that abortion is to that. Um, as you know, uh, the vast majority of churches in our land, sadly, tragically, embarrassingly, have gone silent when it comes to speaking up for the least among us, the most vulnerable among us, those that are most oppressed and most targeted unjustly for death. And of course, that is our preborn neighbors. And so I'm grateful for a church like this um, and for the leadership that you have that does not shrink back from tackling the difficult issues and from speaking up on behalf of those who have no voice. So thank you again, Pastor Dale, Pastor Jacob, and to your leadership as well. Uh, I do believe, just to add to that, I I really believe that where a pastor stands on the issue of abortion tells me where he stands on a whole lot of other things. It says a lot about his um, love for God, his love for you as the flock. And so I trust that you know uh, that you're blessed to have the leadership that you have here Our nation is deeply, deeply and bitterly divided over the subject of abortion. And unfortunately, in due great part to the silence of so many churches, many of our churches throughout our land are also deeply divided over the subject of abortion. And for this reason and others, it's vitally important that as Christians we know how to think rightly about abortion so that we can know how to act rightly toward our preborn neighbors um, who are, again, targeted by elective abortion. So I, I love the question. Uh, I've been doing this work for uh, full-time now for 12 years, and I've never been asked to address it quite this way before, but I love it. The question that uh, your pastor leadership has asked me to address today is the question, how should Christians view abortion and the laws that pertain to it? And so what I want to do here for my time with you this morning is to take that question and just to turn it into two, and that'll serve as our outline, just a two-point outline here today. So the first question we're going to address is, how should Christians view abortion? And then secondly, how should Christians view laws that pertain to abortion? So we'll deal with those separately. Before I do that, I, I want to simply say this, by, again, by way of introduction, I realize that I'm undoubtedly in a church this size speaking to some who have been impacted by previous abortion decisions. Maybe you've had an abortion or maybe you have been responsible for an abortion decision. I realize that much of what I'm going to share this morning uh, is perhaps going to be difficult for you. I just want to say this to you. I, I intend to speak very directly and very boldly and very biblically to this subject. And I trust that you understand that I need to do that. But I also intend to speak very redemptively um, with God's grace and and, and bringing the gospel to bear on this very difficult subject. And I want to say this, toward about halfway through, a little bit more than halfway through my message, I want to speak directly to those of you who have been impacted by abortion decisions. And I really want to bring um, God's grace to this subject. So I hope that you'll just kind of hang in there with me through some of the difficult stuff that I'm going to share today. Let's go ahead and dive right in. I want to start with this, this first question. How should Christians view abortion? Now, I'm not assuming that all of you are Christians today. I'm sure that's not the case. I hope it is, but I'm sure it's not. Nor am I assuming that you're all pro-life today. Again, I hope that's the case, but I recognize in a church this size that's probably not the case. And that's okay. But I want to answer this question for all of us. How should followers of Christ view abortion? And I think the answer to that question really depends on another question and how we answer it. And that is the question, what is the preborn? What is the preborn? Um, 
This is the question, quite frankly, and again, I don't say this with any disdain or anything, but this is the question that those on the other side typically want to ignore. And for the record, I was on the other side. I didn't come to faith in Christ until I was 21, and it was eight or nine months after coming to faith in Christ that I saw a film called The Silent Scream where I saw an abortion performed, and I couldn't believe it. And that was a game changer for me. So again, I'm not trying to be aggressive here toward anybody who is for abortion or considers themselves pro-choice, but I think this is the question that typically the other side wants to ignore. They want to sweep this under the rug. They want to gloss over it and pretend like it doesn't exist. Or they want to assume an answer to the question, what are the preborn, that they've never actually argued for. And that's called begging the question. So I want to address this question, what are they? Greg Kokel, pro-life author and speaker, says it this way. He said, if the unborn are not human, then no justification for elective abortion is necessary. But if the unborn are human, then no justification for elective abortion is adequate. And I think he is exactly right. The science of human embryology actually answers this question for us. And this is the consensus among human embryologists, that life begins at conception or at fertilization. In other words, from the moment that you were conceived in your mother's womb, you were distinct, living, human, and whole. Now, again, I could break those down and spend time on that. I won't this morning. But this is the consensus finding of human embryologists. Um, Ward Kisher is a PhD, he's a human embryologist at the University of Arizona. By the way, I could give you literally a dozen quotes here this morning, but let me just give you one from Ward Kisher. Again, human embryologist, he said this, every human embryologist in the world knows that the life of the new individual human being begins at fertilization. It is scientific fact. Brothers and sisters, this is not being debated in any serious manner today in academic circles. I'm not talking about abortion. I'm talking about the full biological humanity of the unborn child from day one. That is not being debated. Horse breeders know when they have a horse, and IVF labs know when they have a human being. This is not being debated in any serious manner. In 2019, the University of Chicago uh, did a study led by Steve Jacobs, who surveyed 5,577 biologists, okay? 96 percent of those affirm that a new individual life does begin at fertilization, and remarkably, 89 percent of those who were polled identified as politically liberal, and 85 uh, percent of those actually identified as pro-choice. And yet, they're acknowledging that the science of human embryology is clear on this point: that life begins at fertilization. In other words, practically speaking, then you are the same person now as you were then, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever, when you were in your mother's womb. Now, you've changed in a myriad of ways. You've changed locations, obviously, right? You've changed in your appearance and your functional abilities and your cognitive abilities. All kinds of things about you have changed and will continue to change in many cases. But the one thing that stays the same is your identity. You are the same person now as you were then. Um, Randy Alcorn says this really well. He, I'm sure many of, you, many of you are familiar with his name. Again, a great um, Christian pro-life author. He said this. He said, something non-human doesn't become human by getting older and bigger. Whatever is human is human from the beginning. In other words, what he's saying is this. We don't, as many people believe, even in, in our churches, unfortunately, we do not start out at day one as one kind of a thing, like this weird fertilized egg, mutilated, you know, mutated, strange kind of a thing, and then slowly over the next nine months gestate into or morph into a human baby. That's not how it works. According to the science of human embryology, you started out over here at day one as a whole human being, an immature, very undeveloped, but a whole human being, genetically speaking. And yes, you changed radically over the next nine months. But the changes that you experienced were within and according to your nature. Your nature doesn't change. It could never change. We change according to our nature, but our nature does not change. Now, to jump ahead quickly, my argument as a pro-lifer, as a Christian, is that if my nature doesn't change, then my value doesn't change. Um, now, interestingly, it's not just pro-choice, I'm sorry, it's not just uh, human embryologists who agree that life begins at fertilization, but many prominent pro-choice philosophers also agree. Prominent names like, and these may not mean something to, to some of you, but some of you will be familiar with names like David Boonin, Michael Tooley, um, Judith Jarvis Thompson, and uh, 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 Peter Singer, uh, all acknowledge, these are prominent pro-choice philosophers who all acknowledge the full biological humanity of the unborn child from day one as a single-cell zygote. Let me give you one quote from these guys. This is Peter Singer. He's the radical ethicist at Princeton University. 
radical proponent of abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, and even argues in his book Practical Ethics that parents ought to have the legal right to kill their born infant children up to 28 days after birth. His argument is that children who are born with severe fetal abnormalities should be put to death on the spot. But listen to what he acknowledges. Quote, There is no doubt that from the first moments of his existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. He's not denying it. Now, interestingly, it's not just human embryologists and prominent pro-choice philosophers, in many cases, who agree that life begins at conception, but many notorious abortionists agree with this. Let me give you just a couple, and I could give you several. Curtis Boyd, and you can watch this interview on YouTube, he asks the question, am I killing? Yes, I am, I know that. Willie Parker, another abortionist, says this, abortion kills a human being, it is the intentional disruption of a pregnancy. We know when human life begins. Abortionists know when human life begins. Now, science can answer the question, what is this? It can say, well, what is a computer, or what is a giraffe, or what is a human being? And it can, it can identify those things. But science can't speak to the value of a human being. And so we're going to go somewhere else briefly here this morning for the answer to that question. The question being, what is it that makes us valuable as human beings in the first place? Are we valuable because we can do certain things, because of what we can do? Or are we valuable because we have the, right, the so-called right skin color? or the so-called right gender? Or are we valuable as human beings simply because of the kind of thing that we are? And of course, the kind of thing that we are is not a thing, but an image bearer. We are God's image bearers. Um, so let me do this. I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about our view, the pro-life view, the biblical view. And then we're going to talk for just a couple of minutes about the opposing or the competing view, the so-called pro-choice view. Let me, and this won't be exhaustive in handling of either of these two, but I want to just highlight a few of the things. Speaking of the biblical position, what we would maybe commonly refer to as the pro-life position, this is the, the position that says that our, our value is rooted in our humanity. We're not valuable because of what we can do or because of how we look or anything like that. We're valuable simply because we've been created in God's image. That there's something special about us, something sacred, something that sets us above all of the other created order. And again, it is namely the fact that we have been created like him in Genesis 1.27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Secondly, we have intrinsic an inestimable moral worth simply because we are created in God's image. This is the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Jesus said it this way, you are worth more than many sparrows. He wasn't saying that animals had no value or that we could abuse them, but he was arguing that there's something unique about us as his image bearers that sets us above the animal world. Now the world says that mankind is basically good but worth nothing. We can abort him, we can euthanize him, right? Christianity teaches the complete opposite. It says, no, 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 mankind is basically bad, but worth everything. So much so that Peter wrote, for it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's where we get our worth. That's where our worth is, is exhibited or displayed. Now, the Bible writers consistently treat, both Old and New Testament alike, treat the preborn child at the earliest stage of development as a single-cell zygote, as a valuable human being. Not just a human being biologically, but a valuable person, okay? Let me give you, a, there are many, many examples that we could go to. Let me just do, share two of these with you. In Psalm 139, and this is probably the go-to passage for pro-lifers, right? This is where David writes, for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, we've all heard that. But I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about what David's actually saying there. Because the operative word in Psalm 139 is the word me. For you created me in my mother's womb. David doesn't say, you created something that later became me. David is identifying himself as an embryo. Just like you or I would say I was once a kindergartner or a freshman in high school. David doesn't merely believe that he came from an embryo. David believes he was an embryo. And he's identifying himself as a valuable person at that point. Now, I think that's intriguing. I think it's compelling. But I want to take it to an even better passage. In Luke chapter 1, if you want to turn there, I'm going to spend just a few minutes here. You don't have to turn to it, but you might want to. This is the story where um, uh, Mary is pregnant with Christ, with Jesus. And, G and we know from the scripture here, from this account, that Jesus is only days or weeks old in Mary's womb at this point. That means Jesus weighs only ounces or grams. Okay? Now, Elizabeth is also pregnant. 
Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, who Greg Kokel humorously refers to at this stage of his development as John the fetus. Okay? And so Elizabeth is pregnant with John. Now, in this passage, not the section I'm going to read from, but the earlier verses actually tell us that John's gestation was about six months of gestation at this point. So he weighed at least two, probably two to three pounds, much larger than Jesus. Mary travels to Judea to visit the home of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this is the account that we read. This is in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 39 through 44. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, you've heard this passage before, but the, the, word, the Greek word for baby here is the word brephos. And let me just insert, this is not compelling at all to non-Christians. I get that. But this ought to be really compelling to us. And I'm going to show you something really powerful here. Again, when, verse four, 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby, brephos, there's that Greek word again, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, I find that rather intriguing. But what makes it even more compelling is if you just flip the page and go to Luke chapter 2. Because in Luke chapter 2, we read this. And this is the story, of course, where the angel has appeared to the shepherds. And this is what the angel says, verse 12. This will be assigned to you. You will find a baby, brephos, wrapped in, li- in, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, why is that compelling? Because the same Greek word is used to refer to babies in the womb and out of the womb. Now, again, I, I, that's not compelling to a non-Christian. I get it. But if you believe like I believe and like this church teaches that this is God's infallible inspired word to us, God is the ultimate communicator. He chooses his words very carefully. It's no accident that God chose the same Greek word to refer to babies on both sides of the birth canal. This is powerful. I mean, we could talk about the incarnation. And we could go to, we could go to Hebrews chapter 2 that said that Jesus had to become just like us. John chapter 1, he became flesh. Well, the miracle of the incarnation is not his birth. It's the fact that he was flesh at the point of fertilization. I mean, we could go to so many other passages, but you get the idea here. The scriptures are not silent about the full biological humanity and the full personhood or value of the unborn baby. Thirdly, under this uh, umbrella here of talking about the biblical or the pro-life position, our view is inclusive and tolerant. And I love to say that. You want to know why? Because the media and, uh, and Hollywood and university campuses are portraying us as Christians as haters who are waging a war on women. We're a bunch of bigots. We've got our holy huddle of the church, and if you don't look just like us, you don't get in. That's the narrative that's pushed and peddled everywhere. To the point where I think a lot of Christians have sort of bought it. Like, yeah, it's an old tale, but I'm kind of attached to it. You know, kind of Eeyore, right? It's not true. Nobody does tolerance and acceptance better than us. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm just saying we're better than everybody else, if I may be so bold. This view, our view, the the tolerant view, says that every human being matters. Black, white, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, born and unborn. This teaches, or provides, I should say, the only unshakable foundation for human equality or for universal human human rights. Uh, Human equality, I think you would agree, has to be rooted in something or founded on something that we share in equal measure. Well, the only thing that you and I share in equal measure is our humanity. I mean, look around the room. We've got two different genders, different body shapes. Some of you have hair. Some of us didn't need it, okay? But the one thing that we share in absolute equal measure, every human being, is our humanity. That has to be the foundation for human equality. Otherwise, you destroy the foundation for human equality. Because the minute you say accept, you're not for human equality. If I say, well, I'm all for human equality except for women, I'm not for human equality. I'm all for human equality except for Asians. Well, then I'm not for human equality. How about this? I'm all for human equality except for really small people who are located inside of other people. Well, the minute I say that, I'm not for human equality. Brothers and sisters, we're the tolerant ones. Don't shrink back. Do not be intimidated into silence. All right. Now I want to talk for just a couple minutes about the so-called pro-choice position. Okay? This is the position that says that being human is not enough to ground human equality or human rights. That you've got to earn the right to personhood. 
Now, in philosophical circles, this is called personhood theory. It's not complicated. You've, you've all seen this. Personhood theory is the idea where people will say this, pro-choice people will say this, um, yes, Mike, I acknowledge that the embryo or the fetus is a human being. I acknowledge that it's alive, it's a little boy or it's a girl, it's developing, it's growing. I'll grant you all of that, Mike, but it's not a person. And it doesn't become a person until, fill in the blank, until it's wanted unless it's sentient, unless it's viable, unless it's normal, and on and on and on. And one of the things you notice quickly is that there's no consensus on the other side as to when they think a baby becomes a valuable person. Now, to be clear, this division that we see, this distinction that we see drawn between humanness and personhood is completely artificial. This is completely deceptive. It's smoke and mirrors. If you're a human, you are a person. Okay? It's really that simple. Um, Now, I quoted Peter Singer earlier, and you remember the quote. He acknowledged the full biological humanity of the unborn child. He wasn't denying that. But listen to what he says. This is an example of personhood theory. Here's what he says. Human babies are not born self-aware or capable of grasping that they exist over time. They are not persons. The life of a newborn is of less value than the life of a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. What a godless worldview. What a low view of humanity. You know, every time humanness is divorced from personhood, we see this throughout, we've seen this throughout history, every time humanness is divorced from personhood, innocent human beings are targeted unjustly for death. The ovens of Auschwitz and the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge are testif- testify to that fact. I like what John Stone Street said. He said, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. And he's right. And the pro-choice view is a bad idea that has left 63 million dead children in its wake and scores of mothers and fathers who have, who've regretted their decisions. This view, the so-called pro-choice view, is intolerant and elitist. It says that only certain human beings matter and only if they measure up to some arbitrary test or standard that the powerful establish for the weak. You see a conflict of interest there? So in answering the question, how should we view abortion as Christians, we should view it as God does. Now, somebody might object at this point and say, but the Bible never mentions abortion. And that's true. You'll never find the word abortion in the Bible. But the faulty assumption here is that what the Bible does not expressly condemn, it therefore condones. Think how crazy that is. Where in your Bible does it expressly condemn torturing puppies or pouring toxins into our rivers? But we know God condemns those things. We know it by inference because he's called us to steward that which he's created. We don't need a Bible verse that says thou shalt not torture puppies. And we don't need a Bible verse that says we shall not murder human beings through this method that we call abortion. Brothers and sisters, remember, abortion is just one method of many that sinful mankind has devised since Cain killed Abel to kill each other. And we can do it with knives, guns, poisons, ropes, or abortion. It's just a method of murder. We don't need a Bible verse that lists... If the Bible were to list all of the methods of murder, it would be be this thick. It would look like the IRS tax code. You couldn't carry it to church on a Sunday morning. We don't need that. We just need to know that the Bible frequently and clearly condemns the unjust shedding of innocent human blood. We got this in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. Exodus 20, 13. You shall not murder. Proverbs 6, 17. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. One of those is hands that shed innocent blood. We don't need a Bible verse expressly stating this method of murder any more than, as Francis Beckwith says, any more than we need a Bible verse that says, thou shalt not suffocate your neighbor with a pillow. We don't need that. Nor do we need a Bible verse expressly stating which classes of human beings we can't murder. For instance, nowhere does the Bible say, thou shalt not murder Hispanics or Asians or people born in February. We don't need that. All we need to know is the Bible condemns the unjust shedding of innocent human blood, and then we just need to know what is a human being. And we know that from the science of human embryology as well as from the scriptural record. So clearly, all of the Old Testament and New Testament verses that are there to protect you at this stage of your life are there to protect you at every stage of your life. And that's true for every other human being as well. So we should view killing children in the womb in the same way that we would view killing children in the kitchen or in the garage. Because it's not the location that makes the killing wrong. It's the killing itself. Like slavery... And like the Holocaust, abortion is an attack on our fellow image bearers. Abortion is the intentional and unjust killing of innocent human beings in their most vulnerable stage of development in the most barbaric manner imaginable. Um, You know, it's interesting to me that in our culture, we can see every vile graphic thing under the sun. 
Not that we should, but we can. But for some reason, we're told there's never an appropriate time or place to see what abortion does to little girls and boys. The media won't show it because they're in bed with Planned Parenthood. Hollywood won't show it because they're in bed with Planned Parenthood. Our universities won't show it for the same reason. And sadly, tragically, and I think embarrassingly, the vast majority of churches would never show it. Do you know that's our job? Ephesians 5.11 couldn't possibly be more clear. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. This isn't pleasant work, but this is the job of the church to expose this evil, whether we're talking about the evil of sex trafficking or pornography, or in this case, the evil of abortion. The problem that you and I face as pro-life ambassadors, and that's what we are in this culture, is that most people see abortion abstractly. For them, it's not real. Now, they know it's real in a sense, but it never connects really in any sort of an emotive way or even an intellectual way. So somehow you and I as pro-life ambassadors have got to move abortion from the abstract column to the concrete column in our conversations, in our dialogue with people. And there's only two ways that I know to do that. One way is through the use of good rational argument, through the the use of, of appealing to scripture and moral reasoning. But there's another way that we do it. And it's through the responsible use of victim imagery. Now, nobody... Nobody argues this or disputes this in other categories. For instance, none of us us would contend that we argue that showing victims of Jewish uh, men and women and children uh, stacked on carts in Dachau was inappropriate. We all recognize the need to see something like that. Or the Twin Towers, we've all seen people jumping 75, 80 stories from 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 those buildings to their death to escape the flames. These are not pleasant images, but we recognize the need to see them, don't we? But for some reason, we can never see what abortion does to children. I think you have a right to see it. And frankly, I think the victims have a right to be seen. I'm going to show you a short video today. It's a minute and eight seconds long. You're not going to see an abortion being performed. But you are going to see the effects of abortion in all three trimesters. I want you to be well warned. It's very difficult to watch. But I want to say this about it. If you choose not to watch it, you can simply avert your gaze, close your eyes, or even step out of the sanctuary if you prefer. There is no audio narration, so if you don't watch, you're not going to hear anything except music. And that's a courtesy to you, okay? But I want to say this. If you've never actually seen abortion in all of its ugliness, I want to plead with you today to watch it. If something is so vile we can't stand looking at it, perhaps we ought not to be tolerating it. Now, let me say a couple more things very quickly. Moms and dads, if you have younger children in the room, I would suggest either stepping out with them or just closing their eyes. The the video is a minute and eight seconds long. It's not real long, but I would would encourage you to do that. The other thing I want to say is this. I realize I am undoubtedly, I'm sure, talking to somebody who's been impacted by a previous abortion decision. And if that's you, I'm not showing this to heap abuse or guilt or anything on you. I'm not showing it to manipulate, but to educate And I trust that you recognize the need for this kind of thing to be seen. Um, I'll say more to you later, but I do want to say this. If you've been impacted by an abortion decision, there's no sin that is so great or so bad, but that the grace of Jesus Christ is not greater still. If you've had an abortion, um, there's complete forgiveness and healing for you. And I'm going to talk more about that later. Um, So please, feel free to look away uh, if if that's what you feel like you need to do. This is between you and the Lord. But if you're able to watch this, I want to encourage you to do so. We're going to go ahead and show that at this time. Brothers and sisters, legalized abortion is the defining moral issue of our day. It's not the only issue. 
And as the body of Christ, we care deeply about many issues. But when well over 2,000 children are aborted every day in the United States, this is clearly the defining moral issue. And what you just saw, if you watched that video, is what Planned Parenthood does not want you, your children, or your grandchildren to see. Responding to abortion is a gospel issue. It is a loving your neighbor as yourself issue. And sadly, as I said earlier, the vast majority of churches have chosen silence over faithfulness when it comes to speaking up for our preborn brothers and sisters. This is our great scandal as the body of Christ in 2023. Pulpit silence is communicating to those in our churches one of two messages, both regrettable and both damaging. Either abortion is not so bad or the gospel is not so good or both. I mean, think about it. If you have had an abortion and you're sitting in a church for 10, 15, 20 years and you never hear a word spoken against it, you're left to assume it must not be a big deal. My pastor preaches against other sins, but not this one. Or you're left to assume the opposite, that abortion is so bad I must be guilty of having committed the unpardonable sin. There must be no redemption, no forgiveness for me. These are terrible messages. We have to do better. Paul said, speak the truth in love. The sin of abortion is no match for the grace of God. And I want to speak to those of you who have been impacted personally by an abortion decision. In 1 John, we read these beautiful, beautiful words. That if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That promise is is for you as much as it's for me or anybody else in this room. If you've had an abortion, you don't need one more drop of grace than any other person in this room. The ground is even at the foot of the cross. Listen to these words. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, that passage goes on to say, brings death. If we confess our sin, whatever that sin is, lust, lying, gossip, slander, abortion, when we confess our sins, he's not only faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but John 8, 36 says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You will be free indeed. If all Jesus did was forgive us of our sin, again, whatever that sin is, in this case we're talking about abortion, if all he did was forgive us of our sin, he would be worthy of praise for all of eternity, but he does more than that. How do I know? Because Philippians 1 tells me that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't just promise to forgive you of the sin of abortion, he promises to put you back together emotionally, to restore you to kingdom usefulness. And when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't look at you as the person who had an abortion. He looks at you through the blood of Christ as one of his redeemed sons or daughters. That's the gospel. Why are we hiding that good news in so many of our churches? Now, I want to turn our attention to the second question. We've answered the first one. um, And now I want to answer the first one being, how should Christians view abortion? Now I want to answer the second half of this. How should Christians view laws pertaining to abortion? Now, in answering this question, I'm going to say more, but simply put, laws that protect innocent human life are just laws, God-honoring laws, and laws that protect the legal destruction of innocent human life are unjust laws. Now, of course, this raises the obvious question. But isn't abortion a political issue and therefore off-limits for the church, off-limits for the pulpit? Well, it is true that abortion is a political issue. Who can deny that? Of course it is. But it is much more accurate to describe describe it as a moral spiritual issue that has been politicized. And when you think about it, every moral issue is eventually politicized. It wasn't too many years ago when the redefining of marriage was politicized. That didn't render it off limits for the pulpit, did it? Well, of course not. Now, suppose it it was legal to kill toddlers. Not babies in the womb, but babies that have been born, two-year-olds, okay? Suppose it was legal for moms to kill their toddlers. And suppose that issue became hotly politicized, as it undoubtedly would, right? Would any serious-minded Christian argue that the practice of toddler killing, because it had become politicized, was therefore off-limits for the pulpit? Or would any, anyone deny that saving toddlers 
from this unjust killing was a gospel issue? I hardly think so. Like the Fugitive uh, Slave Act of Antebellum America and the anti-Semitic Nuremberg laws of Nazi Germany, laws that deny precious children their right to life are an attack on God's image bearers. They are an attack on God himself. How can we as the body of Christ remain faithful while remaining silent? We do well to remember that evil often presents itself to a society as a policy issue. But just because a moral issue is politicized, again, does not render it off limits. Faithful Christians were outspokenly opposed to the Fugitive Slave Act in in 1850. And in fact, when the law went into effect that actually allowed slave owners to pursue their runaway slaves into the free state of Ohio, there was only one response for faithful Christians. And that was to defy that law and to give harbor to, 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 to save those runaway slaves. And that's exactly what many Christians did, most notably here in Ohio, John, Pastor John Rankin and Pastor uh, uh, John Parker. Uh, renowned pastors who were part of the Underground Railroad, John Rankin's house still stands as a museum and and as a testament to his bravery and courage and sacrifice overlooking the Ohio River not too far from here. We celebrate these men and their courage. The most fundamental duty of the government is to protect the weak from the strong. But when the government refuses to do this, the church must act. We have moral duties to our fellow image bearers, whether they've been beaten and abandoned in a ditch, or denied legal protection and abandoned in the womb. The abundance of Old and New Testament commandments intended to safeguard um, human life obligate us to shield such human prey, the preborn, uh, the youngest and the most defenseless among us, from violent oppressors. Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says this, Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Proverbs 31, verse 8, Speak up for those who have no voice for the rights of all who are destitute. That's a commandment, not a suggestion. Proverbs 24, 11, Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. Speaking out from the pulpit against abortion is not an issue of partisanship. It is an issue of lordship. It's not about making the church or the pulpit more political. It's about making the church more theological. That's what this is about. Christ is Lord of all. Can I get a witness? Okay? He's Lord of all. So in my case, he's Lord of my role as a husband, as a father. He's Lord of my money. He's Lord of my time. He's Lord of my sexuality. And he is Lord of my vote. Pastors teach their congregations how to behave sexually, how to treat their spouses, how to manage their money. Isn't it the job of the pastor in the church to teach us how to vote? I'm not saying to tell us who to vote for, but to train us to think biblically. Because when I go into the voting booth and when you go into the voting booth, we have a moral duty before Christ. And it's not to just vote for my pet issue. It's to ask myself, what is the fundamental duty of government? And how can I use my political influence through my vote to mitigate evil and to protect the weakest and the most vulnerable and certainly the most targeted among us? It's not to suggest that we're single-issue voters. I know that we're accused of that all the time. I'm not. I care deeply about many issues. I think thoughtful and mature Christians should. But we do recognize that certain moral issues, like the wanton slaughter of little girls and boys in the name of choice, should rise to the top when we go into the voting booth. Somebody once said it this way, and I love this. Show me where a candidate or a political party stands on abortion, and I'll show you where they stand on a whole host of other issues. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, said it this way. He said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, that is mine. He is Lord of our vote. To vote for a candidate or a political party who wants to deny or strip an entire class of our image bearers, an entire class of our citizenry, their most fundamental right, the right to continue living, the right to life, is to side with evil. Can there be any question about this? Now, to be clear, we're not to make an idol of politics. Our salvation is not found in a political party. The Bible is very clear. Psalm 33, no king is saved by the size of his army, no warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse, or we could insert here a politician or a political party, is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. 
Politics could never usher in a utopia in our society because our problems are primarily internal, not external. Only Christ can save us from ourselves. Only Christ can save America from our current slide into gross immorality and into absolute, complete madness, which is what we see all around us today. But this is not to say that politics has no place in the Christian life. William Wilberforce, uh, you might know that story, uh, was in Parliament and was deeply grieved over the Atlantic slave trade, deeply burdened. But he was also, he had come to faith in Christ, he was also feeling like he should go into the pastorate. And so he went to John Newton, the former slave trader, who had come to faith in Christ, who wrote Amazing Grace, one of our most, if not our most beloved hymn. And so Wilberforce went to John Newton to get wisdom from him. And John Newton basically said, stay where you're at and use your Christian influence in politics. Fight this demonic evil called the Atlantic slave trade. And that's what he did. And it was 20 years of laboring in Parliament before Wilberforce was rewarded for his sacrifice and the Atlantic slave trade was no more. While we mustn't place our hope in politics, we should use whatever influence we have to mitigate evil and to better our world. And we do this in part through our vote. With freedom comes responsibility. As Americans, God has ordained that we can participate in our government because ours is a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. We have the unique privilege and the duty of using our gospel influence to protect our brothers and sisters from abortion and to protect the born who are targeted by those who would mutilate their bodies through gender reassignment surgeries. Now, the timeliness of this question, again, the question being how should Christians view um, laws that pertain to abortion, the timeliness of this question couldn't be more relevant. Since the fall of Roe, which, by the way, was one year ago yesterday when the Supreme Court uh, ruled in the Dobbs versus Jackson decision, thereby undoing Roe v. Wade, praise God, that was a great victory, but it was a partial victory. We know that because the battle over life is not over with. It continues to rage. And now abortion activists here have adopted a new tactic, and that is passing state constitutional amendments to enshrine abortion into law or into our state constitution. This has proven a highly effective strategy throughout the United States. Since Dobbs, a year ago, yesterday, three states, Michigan, Vermont, and California, have all passed constitutional amendments guaranteeing a so-called right to abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. In addition, three other states, these are more red states or conservative states, Kansas, Montana, and Kentucky, tried to pass amendments to protect the right to life. All three of those states failed in that effort. That means six states failed to secure lasting protections for the unborn in the past year. That effort, that effort now to... to Enshrine abortion into our laws is underway right here in the state of Ohio. I'm sure many of you have heard about this. There are two pro-abortion groups, one called Protect Choice Ohio and one called Ohioans for Reproductive, uh, for reproductive Freedom, uh, euphemistically titled, of course. These two groups are working on a ballot initiative to enshrine abortion into our state constitution. They are right now canvassing the state of Ohio to collect the 413,000 plus signatures that they need to put this on the ballot in November. I just heard the other day that they've already reached that number. Um, they have poured, they, these groups have, have, have uh, vowed or pledged, I should say is the word, they have pledged $70 million into this effort in the state of Ohio, undoubtedly designed to confuse voters. Now, unfortunately, as it stands in the state of Ohio, to change our constitution, and this is ridiculous, no state constitution should be so malleable, but right now, to change our constitution, you only need 50% plus one vote to change it. That means, come November 7th, we've got a massive battle on our hands. Um, Michigan passed the same kind of demonic proposition, Prop 3 it was called there. They passed that with 57% of the vote. Getting 50% plus one in Ohio will be no trouble at all. Um, I want to say more about that. Let me just say a couple more things. It's important to understand the gravity of a constitutional amendment. Our state constitution is the supreme law of Ohio. All other laws are either upheld or struck down based on their constitutionality. Um, so it's nearly impossible to overstate the damage that will be caused by codifying abortion rights, so-called abortion rights, within the text of our constitution. 
Now, according to the language of the ballot initiative, and I'm not going to read it for you here this morning, but you can see it on our website. I have two websites. One is projectlifevoice.com. But if you go to togetherforlifeohio.com, this is a temporary set, uh, website that we set up to battle this. If you go to togetherforlifeohio.com, I'm sorry, .org, togetherforlifeohio.org, you can see the ballot initiative there. It's less than a page long. It's very short. And it is very cleverly written by a team of attorneys. Here's what it will accomplish if it passes. And I'm not exaggerating this. You can, you can pursue this and check this out on your own. If this ballot initiative passes in November, if the body of Christ stays quiet and does not use their gospel influence, what will happen is not only will, will all laws for protecting the unborn today in Ohio, not only will those be struck down, but parental rights laws will be struck down. That means moms and dads will have no say in it when their minor daughters want to get an abortion. Not only will they have no say in it, they won't even have the right to be informed that it's happening if this ballot initiative passes. If this ballot initiative passes, women will be denied safety and health, health and, and, and uh, life and health standards, safety standards that are currently in play in the state of Ohio. Right now, in the state of Ohio, abortion clinics are considered ambulatory surgical centers. That means that they have to have, legally, they have to have a written transfer agreement with a local hospital within 30 miles of the clinic. So that if the abortionist botches the abortion and, and wounds this woman terribly physically, they would have a seamless transfer of care from the abortion clinic to the hospital. If this ballot initiative passes, those safety standards will be done away with. Abortion clinics will be almost completely unregulated. If this ballot initiative passes, this will be detrimental to gender dysphoric children as well. Because what it will do is it will allow the gender dysphoric minors to get life-altering uh, surgeries, treatments, and medications without the consent or the knowledge of their parents. I'm not exaggerating this. This is our Bonhoeffer moment. That's what this is before us right now. That is not to exaggerate this point. That is not hyperbole. God is calling us to be faithful in this pivotal moment as Christians in Ohio. On November 7th, every Christian will answer this question, whether they vote or they don't vote. And regardless of how they vote, every professing Christian in Ohio is going to answer the question, are God's image bearers worthy of my defense or not? Should mothers have the legal right to destroy their, infant or their, their unborn children? Bonhoeffer taught us, Dietrich Bonhoeffer taught us that the cost of discipleship is oftentimes very, very high. And that, very, that may very well be the case for us at some point. But right now, it's not that high. To use our influence through prayer, through speaking up, through voting, is not that costly. But if we fail, if we refuse to act now when the cost is so low, and if abortion is codified into law in our state constitution, this may be the last time for a very long time that we have the ability to defend the preborn in this manner. I want to plead with you today not to squander your influence as salt and light in this culture, not to squander your political influence, but to vote yes on August 8th to raise the ballot, to raise the threshold. I didn't mention that. Let me very quickly. The threshold right now is 50% plus one to change the state constitution. No state constitution should be that easily changed, regardless of what issues in play. There is, thankfully, a decision was made by our House just a month or so ago that there will be a special election on August the 8th, where we will have the opportunity to vote to raise that threshold to 60%. That will make it not impossible, but much, much harder for the other side to, to change our constitution in November. So I'm pleading with you as a follower of Christ, if you're not registered, to get registered to vote, and if you are registered, to go out and vote on August 8th, to vote to raise that, to vote yes, to raise that threshold, and then to vote no in November to defeat this demonic ballot initiative. I want to close with a quick story. This is the story of, well, let me ask you, does anybody know who this guy is? Can we put that last slide up there? Anybody know who this is? For a crisp $50 bill from Pastor Dale, if you get this right, Let's make it 100. I'm generous today. Anybody know who this guy is? Oh, I'm impressed. See Pastor Dale immediately afterwards. Not now, not now. <laughs> All right. This is why I never get invited back into a church one time only. This is Casper Ten Boom. A lot of people think it's Darwin, but this is actually Casper Ten Boom. Casper Ten Boom is the father to Corey Ten Boom, a name that you may be more familiar with. 
And Casper and his adult children, Corey, Betsy, and Willem, owned a watchmaker shop in the Netherlands during, in Holland, during the uh, uh, Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. And they had a home above the watchmaker shop. Uh, two stories uh, was their home. And they had, um, because of their love for Christ and their love of the gospel, they loved, of course, their Jewish neighbors and friends. And so what they did was as the persecution of the Jew, their Jewish friends and neighbors was intensifying, they took one of the bedrooms on the third story, so two stories above the watchmaker shop, and they bricked in a wall about three feet out. I'm sure many of you know this story, but they bricked in a wall with a pantry and a little removable panel at the bottom of it. And they, they harbored in their home seven Jews for about seven or eight months, kept them alive, kept them safe. And they hooked up a buzzer downstairs in the watchmaker shop underneath, one of the, underneath the counter so that if a Nazi or an SS or somebody came in that was questionable, whoever was working the counter could discreetly reach under there, hit that button, it would ring a bell upstairs, and the Jews would know that there was danger. They would go through that panel, go back into that hiding place. Well, this went on, like I said, for seven or eight months until somebody ratted them out. And so finally the Gestapo showed up in force to raid that home, and they turned that place upside down and inside out. They looked everywhere for, the Jewish, uh, for those Jewish, Jewish fugitives but could not find them. But what they did do was they carted this man at 84 years of age off to the Schwengen prison camp along with his adult children. No retiring from the gospel. 84 years old. And upon his arrival, he was interrogated by two SS officers who made him a deal. This is what they said. Old man, if you will simply tell us where the Jews are hiding, we will send you home today to die in the comfort of your own bed. Now, let me ask you, do you think Casper Ten Boom took that deal? No way. You know what he said? If you send me home today, tomorrow I will answer my door to anyone who knocks for help. Their response, do you know that the answer to that question may have just gotten you killed? His response, I would consider it an honor and a joy to give my life for such as these, God's chosen people. And that's what he did. He died 10 days later. Why am I telling you this? Casper Ten Boom took his Holocaust seriously will we will you will you speak up will you speak out will you be a voice for the voiceless I trust that you will you've got good leadership here and I assume you're being very well trained I want to thank each of you God bless you I'm so blessed to be with you today and to be among brothers and sisters who love Christ and who love their neighbors Pastor Dale thank you We hope you have enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, talk to, or maybe you just want more information about our church, be sure to fill out a Connect card so we can reach out and help you take your next best step. Thanks again for joining, and we will see you back here next time.